Amen. We're going to Ephesians chapter 2. I have a lot of scripture today. If you have trouble keeping up, it will be on the wall, and I'm happy to share notes with people if they would like to make a later point. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. says for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them I'm preaching to you this morning about the pursuit of perfection the pursuit of perfection. The grace of God is a gift from God. It is not deserved. It cannot be earned. It is grace that provides salvation. It is grace that enables us to stay saved. The power of God works in us by His grace. There is never a point in your existence where you no longer need the grace of God. To balance that statement, the grace of God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that allows us to live however we like and declare that God has covered us by His grace. It also, grace does not also simply give us salvation to every person that's alive. The scripture we read tells us that grace is accessed through faith and that faith is also given to each of us by God. You'll find that in Romans that God has given each of us a measure or a portion of faith and it is up to us to take that faith that God has given us, place that faith in God and in His Word and to access His grace and His salvation. Genuine faith always produces a response. When you look at the Word of God, there is a consistent pattern that genuine faith produces a response, in particular a response of obedience to the Word of God. It is not in the doing that the power of the the Word of God is released, but it is in the doing by faith that we access the promises of God. Verse 9 in Ephesians chapter 2 makes it very clear that there is absolutely no reason for man to boast. There is no reason of any kind for us to have pride when it comes to salvation, but that it is by the grace of God, accessed by faith in God, given to us by God. But then verse 10 speaks to us that now that we have been saved, there's something that's happened between verse 8 and verse 10. Verse 10 speaks to us that now that we have been saved, it says that we are His workmanship. Or as one translation puts it, we are his masterpiece. So if he has saved us, now he begins to work on us to restore us to the original design and purpose that we were made for. And part of that purpose and design, according to verse 10, was that we should walk in or we should do good works. It's not necessarily talking about deeds, but rather in the fashion and manner in which we live. The word works that we find in both verses 9 and 10 is the same word obviously in English, but it's also 
translated from the same Greek word. But what makes the difference between these two verses is that works cannot save me. But once I am saved, I am expected to behave in a certain fashion. I am expected to allow Him to work upon me, to live the way that He wants me to live, and to become what He wants me to become. I'm trying to get some things very clear before I go on to the next step. This does not mean that you can measure how saved you are or how much you please God by doing things. You do not earn credits with God or stack up uh, acceptability by things like how much money you give or how many people you bring to church or how many people you help or how many departments you're involved in or how many Bible studies you teach or how many invitation cards you hand out. You, You do not measure your salvation that way. You do not please God by the doing. But if we are God's workmanship, if we are His masterpiece, then He is focusing on making us into an image, not into a machine. We're not just designed to produce. We're designed to become an image. And as Jesus creates Himself in us, which is what He is doing, we become a new creation. Our minds think more like Him and our hearts become more like his what happens then is that this will impact how we use our finances how we spend our time how we want to serve him and his people in whatever way we can how we want others to know him so there is a similar outcome but a different reason jesus is focused on who he wants us to be more than on what he wants us to do because the truth is if we can get a hold of this If he can change who we are, what we do will take care of itself. That's the thing. If our hearts and minds are transformed into the image that he wants them to be, then what we do becomes an outflow of the changes that he's made in us. It flows out of the who we are becoming. That's why we need to hear his voice to be changed for the work of the master craftsman to continue in us we need to i've been on this theme for several weeks and that lets me know that god is trying to get something through to us there's a million things you can preach but when god has you stuck on something it means he's trying to communicate something to us he wants us to be able to hear his voice he wants us to be listening for his voice he wants us to let us let him change us he's not so much concerned with what you're doing as who you are Because as I'm going to say more than once, if he can get who you are right, the doing takes care of itself. Because when I start to think like him and I start to care like him and love like him, that produces fruit. And those are the works that he wants to see us walk in. Not earning points, but demonstrating transformation. To the visible passerby, the one that sees us, it's difficult to tell the difference, but we know that it happens here before it happens here. Amen. And in the process, we spent some time talking about this with the young people on Friday night, and I felt like I wanted to add it into my notes. In the process of learning to listen to the Lord, we have to be able to discern between conviction and condemnation. Because sometimes they feel the same. Sometimes it's not always easy to tell one from the other. God uses the preached word and, the, and His Spirit to convict us. 
or to make us feel a strong awareness of a need to change in some way. We feel that because it hits us in the heart. The Bible says that God's Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Sometimes we, I think, get a little bit wrong. We say that preachers swing the Word like the sword. If you're using the Word of God like a sword as a preacher, you're unskilled. It's more like a scalpel. It's designed to be surgical, not destructive. It's designed to operate. It's designed to heal and to cut out things that shouldn't be there. But conviction hits us in the heart. And the purpose of conviction is always to draw you nearer to God. Even if He is convicting you of sin, the purpose of that conviction is that you might repent, that you might be saved. If the priest's word comes forth and it strikes you like an arrow in your conscience and you feel that impact, it's not that God is wanting to reject you. He's saying, let's address it so that you might be made whole. The devil, on the other hand, uses condemnation. And condemnation also hits us in the heart. But his purpose is to destroy us, to drive us away from God because of sin and shame. That's the difference between conviction and condemnation. The right response to conviction is to run to an altar. The wrong response to conviction is to harden your heart. And the right response to condemnation is to remind the devil of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. The wrong response to condemnation is to believe it and give up on grace and become overwhelmed. As the psalmist said, and we've, it's an old song, but Psalm 61 and 2, from the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock. It doesn't say let me run away and hide. It says lead me to the rock. And I want to tell somebody this morning, if your heart is overwhelmed, if you feel like you've dropped the ball too many times, God is saying come back and make it right. And when we allow Jesus to change who we are, it becomes demonstrated in the what we do. And then when what you do is a product of who he is making you to be. Why is that important? Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So although our works or our actions can never save us, they can never make us good enough, if our works or actions reflect someone who is walking in the Spirit, then we will not fulfill we will not act out the lusts of the flesh. So although our works and our actions do not save us, they certainly reflect where our walk in the Spirit is at. Not only that, they protect us. If we are not walking in the Spirit, if we are not becoming that masterpiece that He wants us to be, then the only other option is that we are walking in the flesh. Walking in the flesh produces attitudes, and actions that can definitely threaten your salvation because the works of the flesh will keep us out of the kingdom of God. So actions do not save us, but being transformed produces a behavior which is walking in the Spirit, which helps us not to go back into sin. I hope you understand the difference between those two. Amen. I believe God wants to stir us up a little this morning. Amen. If we go back to the Old Testament, consider Abraham. 
we'll see some of these same principles. Abraham is a giant in the history of Israel. He's called out by God out of a city and probably a family of idol worshippers to serve God. It's quite possible he was an idol worshipper originally. But together with Moses and David, he's a part of Israel's foundation. When you consider those three men from the generations of Abraham came the patriarchs, came the fathers of the nation of Israel. Through Moses came the law and the introduction of the priesthood. And through David, Israel was established as a nation. It's interesting to me that those three giants in the history of Israel established their identity and all of those things point to the church. That's why 1 Peter 2 and 9 says that you are a chosen generation. There's Abraham. We are a royal priesthood. There's Moses. We are a holy nation. There's what David was. We are a peculiar people that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen. The church today finds its connection to Abraham in that he is called the father of those who walk by faith. He was a man of faith. He walked with God by faith. And those that walk by faith today are his, considered to be his descendants in a spiritual sense. And yet, like many other Bible characters, it should encourage us to know that at times Abraham's faith wavered. It faltered and he found himself walking in the flesh. I don't know if you've ever considered that that's what he was doing, but the birth of Ishmael was not a part of the masterpiece that God was creating in Abraham's life. That was not in the design. And so after Ishmael was born and Abraham had made that mistake in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, it says, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me, and be thou perfect. That's a big request. Abraham had been walking with God. He'd obeyed God. He'd received promises from God. But then God appears to him and says, it's not over yet. There's more to be added. He said, I'm drawing you closer to me. I'm revealing more of what I have for you and for your descendants. And if you read on in that chapter, you'll see that God added components of the covenant that he made with Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis. But the Lord said to Abraham, I am the Almighty God. You need to walk with me and be perfect. Perfect, as many of us understand in both the Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New, means to be complete and blameless. Complete and blameless. And we, we think of perfection and we think of it as something that the way our minds work as being impossible to achieve. But being perfect, if I can help us to understand, is a little bit like being saved. There was a time when you were not saved. There was a time before you were born again. Even, even if your great-great-grandparents were raised in the church, you had to have an experience with God yourself. There's a time before we were saved. Then we obeyed the gospel by faith and we became saved. Some of us, that's recently. Some of us, it's 10 years ago. Others, it's a long, long time ago. There was a point where we transitioned, as it were, from being unsaved to being saved. And in the present, if I'm walking with God, I am saved and you are saved. But there is coming a day, the Bible says, when He will return for His people 
and we shall then be saved for eternity. And the process will be finished and the masterpiece will have its final brushstrokes applied and it will be done. And so in the same way, when we consider being perfect without Jesus, we were incomplete, we were imperfect and most definitely not blameless. We were blameless. But when we are born again of water and of spirit, we become complete in Him. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. He said, you are complete in Him. And yet, although we are complete, He desires to continue to work in us until the ultimate perfection is achieved when we are transformed at His return. So we are able, turn to your neighbor and say, you and I are complete in Him. I hope they said it like they meant it. We are born again of water and spirit and ready to meet the Lord, but perfect, but still being perfected, if I can put it that way. If you are ready to meet the Lord now, then you are complete in Him. But until He returns, He is going to continue to perfect you. Until that point comes where 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that this corruption will put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality and we shall be changed. It will be the final act, if you like, of the perfection process when we go from this limited life to that which is unlimited. So although it is accurate for us to say we are complete in Him and ready to meet Him if we're walking with Him, there is still a call that comes to us from heaven just like came to Abraham that says, walk before me and be perfect. That comes to us just like it came to Abraham. Amen. Not to save ourselves. I I hope I've established that. We do not save ourselves by our actions but we are to pursue the process of transformation. As the psalmist said in 63 and 8, my soul follows hard after thee. That speaks to us of a dedication, of a focus. He said, your right hand upholds me. That means that when I'm in pursuit of God, his power is upon me to see that process come to pass. We have to understand that the grace of God is not a signal for us to put ourselves into spiritual cruise control and sit back and enjoy the ride. Jesus, the same one who brought us the grace of God, said in Luke 13 and 24, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able It's hard for us to reconcile the idea of grace and striving, but that is very much the picture that Scripture gives us. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do enough good deeds, do enough good stuff to save yourself, but when you are saved, He wants you to strive to enter in. He wants you to reach. He wants you to follow hard after Him. He wants you to pursue Him. And the Lord said that in Luke 13. It's not a picture of a relaxed individual sitting on a couch simply thanking God for His grace. But rather, if we understand it probably because of grace, we need to strive to enter in. Hallelujah. Grace provides the opportunity 
but it does not remove the obstacles. Oh, how I wish it did. There is overcoming that is still involved. There is laying aside things that hold us back and hold us down. There's resisting temptation. There's releasing offense. There's strength in weakness. All of this is a part of the pursuit of perfection. Amen. I want you to take your Bibles and go to Philippians chapter 3 with me. We're going to spend a few minutes here. While you're turning there, let me rep- I'm going to say this multiple times. You cannot do enough to save your soul. So if you're struggling to understand what you have to do to be saved, you have to obey the gospel by faith. But then when you are saved, he begins to work on you. We are his masterpiece. You might not think of yourself as a masterpiece, but if you're created in his image, if he's not the master, I don't know who is. And if he wants us to reflect him, he's making a masterpiece in his image. To give you a little background to Philippians chapter 2 and the second chapter of Philippians, and we'll read a couple of verses from there in a minute, Paul writes a very well-known and very, very powerful passage of scripture about what it means to have the mind of Christ and what you may not have noticed is that although he wrote that passage under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost it also seems that he's writing in response to some of the things that he's heard are going on in the church in Philippi so if you read that whole epistle there's only four chapters there if you read that whole epistle there's a young man that is referenced whose name is Epaphroditus and He's spoken of in this epistle several times, but Epaphroditus has come from Philippi. He's come from the church that the letter's being written to, and he's the one that will return to Philippi and be the courier. He delivers the epistle to the Philippian church. And it would seem that he's spoken to Paul about how the church is doing and some of the things that were going on. Because when you read this passage in chapter 2 about having the mind of Christ, there are there are couple of verses on each end of that passage like bookends. Everybody know what I mean when I say bookends? You ever seen a bookshelf with all the books lined up and there might be something heavy on each end holding those books, stopping them from falling over? Sometimes it's decorative, sometimes it's a brick. Who knows? But you know, you know what a bookend is? It, it, it contains that. And like bookends, on the end of this incredible passage of Scripture, it seems to suggest that there is division that there's rumblings, that there's complaining going on in the church. And in verse 1 of chapter 2, and just stay in chapter 3, this one will be on the screen. Paul says, If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, that word bowels is talking about deep-seated compassion. He says, Fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Verse 1 asks, kind of asks four questions. It uses the little word if four times. The question is not do these things exist, but it's Paul's way of saying they should be present in the church. He's saying there should be consolation. There should be comfort, there should be fellowship, there should be compassion and mercy. And in verse 2 he says, It would really give me great joy to see you all in agreement, in unity, and in love. And then in verse 
3, he says, don't do things that cause trouble and division, things that are a product of carnal pride. That's what he's saying to the church there. Then he says a similar thing in verse 14, which is kind of the other bookend, where he says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. He said, don't be complainers, don't be contentious. And there are just some people that love to argue. If you say right, they'll say wrong. If you say hot, they'll say cold. It doesn't seem to matter. Whatever position you take, they'll take the other end just for the sport of an argument. The Scripture says don't be murmurers, don't be complainers, don't be contentious. Because what is amazing is there's a reason he's writing those things. I, I, I can't give you exact details, but it seems like Epaphroditus has said, well, there's a few challenges in the church. And in between those two bookends... Paul writes verses 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's kind of sobering that that incredible passage of Scripture about the mind of Christ is bookend with reflection on carnal behavior in the family of God. Paul wasn't saying they weren't saved. He wasn't saying they weren't saved. But what he was saying was that this is what we ought to be aiming for. He said, we need to not be murmuring. We need to not be dissenting. We need, we need to lay aside that stuff. And we need to let this mind be in you. The pursuit of perfection. This is what was in Jesus Christ, who although he was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and was equal to God, he, he, there was no misunderstanding of his identity. He was God manifest in the flesh. And yet he made himself of no reputation took upon him the form of a servant. He said, that's the mind we're aiming for, saints. He said, I, you know, I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that. He's saying, but fulfill you my joy. Let there be unity. Let there be love in the family of God. He said, let's take on the mind of Christ. Let's not be fussing about stuff that doesn't matter. Let's take on that heart of a servant. He said, that's what we need to be aiming for. That's what we need to be pursuing that's the platform, or at least some of the platform, that leads us into chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, finally. That statement, is the word is not said to say he's getting ready to wrap it up, but rather it's kind of like trying to bring together some of the things he's just covered. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. He said, whatever we go through, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul understood better than I think any one of us ever has what it was to go through the trials of your faith, what it was to deal with the flaws of humanity and how those things together can rob you of your joy. But he reminds us that rejoicing is still powerful. In fact, when you break down that verse and dissect some of that King James English, he's saying, I have absolutely no problem repeating myself to you. That's what he's saying. He said, to, he said, 
He said, to write the same things is not grievous. He said, I'm going to tell you again and again and again. Let this mind be in you. Rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because it will keep you safe. That's what he said. I'm going to write. I'm going to tell you again because for you, it is a place of safety to be reminded of what it is that we are pursuing. We need to pursue the mind of Christ and to keep our joy and those things together are directly connected to us being safe. I don't know about you, but I want to be spiritually safe. I want to feel an assurance from God that I am in the palm of His hand, that regardless how the wind blows and how the rain comes, if I will rejoice in the Lord, I'm going to be safe. I'm going to stay there. Nothing can move me out of the Father's hand. Paul looked at his life through Christ. That was the key. He didn't look at Christ through his life. Too many times we look at the Lord through our life and something in the focus gets made crooked along the journey. But when we look through Jesus at our lives, we're able to say whatever he's allowed to come against me. I will rejoice. I will take on, be willing to take on the mind of Christ to humble myself, to love, to have unity, to be bound together with his people and be safe. Paul then warns in the next couple of verses, he warns the Philippians about those that are trying to force the church to keep the law of Moses, who those who really what they're doing is they're trusting in their flesh. They're trusting in abilities. And then in verses 4 through 6, he presents, if you like, himself as an example. He says, he says, if anybody should be able to claim that they can trust in their own abilities, it's me. Look at verse 4. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. That's pretty bold. He said, you guys think you've got it? I'm better than you. You want to talk about a natural sense? I'll take you all on. That's what he's saying. Verse 5, circumcised the eighth day. I'm a Jew, stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. There weren't many Jews that could, be, could claim to be blameless at keeping the law. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and the Lord said to him, you know the commandments, this, 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 and this. He said, I've done all those since I was a child. God began to look into his heart. And God had to do the same thing with the Apostle Paul. Paul ticked all the boxes. I've kept the law. I'm zealous. I'm righteous. I'm, I'm, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He said, I'm top shelf. He's that one that always passed the test, always got an A+. Plus. He's saying, you check out my resume in the natural. He said, I'll put that up against anybody's. But when he encountered Jesus and found himself standing before the cross. Not literally. He wasn't at Calvary. But just like we come and stand before the cross, and he realized who Jesus is and what he gave. Then he says in verse 7, after saying, look, if you want to talk about flesh, I'll take you all. But then in verse 7 he says, but what things were gained to me? All that stuff I used to think was important. He said, those I counted loss for Christ he said yeah doubtless he said I'm not even wavering he said I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And he said, I count them, but no, he said, they're worthless. That I may win Christ, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. He said, I can't depend upon the righteousness of just keeping commandments. He said, but this righteousness is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection. I believe that's a statement about that resurrection power now, but also the final perfection. The fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable under his death. He said, everything I am, everything I ever trusted in, everything I was that I thought was so valuable, he said, when I stand before Jesus, it's completely worthless when I stand in his presence. He said, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ and his grace It's his righteousness that is added to my account, not my righteousness. No matter how many rules I keep, he said, without his righteousness. Paul said, I've become his child. And with the same passion that he had before, he began to pursue perfection in Jesus Christ. Verse 11 of chapter 3 says, If by any means whatever it takes, we might say, I might, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And then in verse 12, he says, not as though I had already attained. Either were already perfect. He said, I'm not there yet. But he said, but I follow after. I'm pursuing that I may apprehend. I want to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. Verse 13, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I certainly have not arrived, he said, but this one thing. So this is my reason for living. This one thing I do, I forget those things which are behind and I reach forth under those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. The same apostle who told us in Colossians, which if you want to understand chronologically was written before Philippians. The same apostle who told us in Colossians that we are complete in him makes it very clear that he is still pursuing perfection. He said things like, I haven't attained. I'm not yet perfect. I haven't apprehended. I'm reaching. I'm pressing. You see, those two statements are not a contradiction. We are complete in him. But there is more. If you're born again and you're walking with him, you're complete in him. But there is more. It's not a contradiction. If you look, if you take the time later perhaps to look into the original meanings in the Greek of some of those words like the phrases like follow after and press, they come from a Greek word which includes in its meanings a willingness to go through trials and opposition. It's not just talking about effort, it's talking about endurance. It's talking about being able to stick it out. Paul understood very clearly that greater perfection was to be found on the other side of tribulation. We want the perfection, but we want to bypass the tribulation. Paul said, if I'm going to press, if I'm going to reach, if I'm going to strive, if I'm going to try and apprehend this, I'm going to have to go through. You can't go around, you must go through to reach the next level of where God wants you to be. He understood that. James understood it as well in James chapter 1. 
verses 3 and 4, James said, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So if you want to be complete, if you want to pursue perfection, you've got to have patience. Not many of us naturally have patience. Long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. It is most definitely not a work of the flesh. It is a fruit of the Spirit. If we are going to be complete, if we are going to pursue the perfection of Jesus Christ, we must be willing to endure. We must be willing to go through some things. And then we read on back in Philippians chapter 3. In verse 15, Paul says, Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect. Almost seems like he's contradicting himself, but you're going to understand you can be complete and still be perfecting. As many as be perfect, be thus minded. This is how you need to think, that you need to be pressing towards. And if anything you're otherwise minded, God's going to reveal it unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. He's saying, those of us that are already perfect, you're complete in Him, but you need to have the same mindset that I just spoke about. You need to be reaching. You need to be pressing. You need to be pushing. You need to be aiming for a mark. He said, if that's not where your mind is at, God's going to reveal it unto you. He'll convict you if that's not where your mind is at. Then he says, consider how far we've come and keep that in mind as we continue to pursue Jesus. Again, I'm going to repeat myself. We are saved by grace. We cannot save ourselves. Cannot do enough, cannot be good enough to take away our own sins. Our faith must be in what Jesus did on Calvary. And by that faith, we obey the gospel. But what we've got to understand is that grace is not an excuse for mediocrity or being half-hearted, or being uncommitted to Jesus Christ. If you think grace is an excuse for spiritual laziness, you misunderstand it. Grace is the greatest opportunity that you will ever have in this life. You need to take a hold of it with everything that you have, and you need to pursue after its giver. You know, one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to be is motionless motionless because it doesn't matter how long you serve god if you pull off the road and just turn off the engine and you sit there motionless you're not pursuing now i know you can say well in ephesians it says you've done all these things to stand standing suggests that you're not moving but even when you're standing in a battle you're still moving forward spiritually but when we get to a point and it happens when you serve god for a period of time where you feel like the progress is acceptable And you just sort of go, well, I'm just going to rest here. This is a comfortable area. You are at your most vulnerable when you cease pursuing Jesus Christ. You go back to the book of 1 Kings chapter 13. It's not on the slides. It tells us the story. We preached about it a few weeks ago. The unnamed prophet. Young man comes in to 
Bethel and, and prophesies against the altar and, and God does the miraculous and the king says, come home with me and eat with me. And the young man says, the Lord told me to go in one way, do what I got to do, go out another way, don't stop, don't eat, don't drink, don't do anything. And then when the message gets back to the old prophet and his sons come home and say, wow, dad, you should have seen what happened in town today. There was this man of God and the old man goes after the young man. Where does he find him? Sitting under a tree. Resting. I wonder how that story would read if he didn't stop, but he had to just kept going. If in his obedience to God, he said, I'll rest when I get out of this place. If he hadn't have stopped, a backslidden old prophet wouldn't have been able to find him. And who knows how that narrative might have turned out differently. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24, and I'm just about done. Know you not that they which run in a race run all? No matter how many people in a race, they all run, but only one receives the prize. Paul said, that's how you need to run. He said, so run that you may obtain. He said, you need to run as if there is only one prize. You don't get a trophy by just showing up. God forbid that the spirit of this participation trophy generation gets into the church let me make it very clear we are not competing against each other you do not compete you do there's no gold silver and bronze in the kingdom of god we're not competing against each other but god expects each of us to run like we want to win so the question is what are we running against we're running against our flesh we're running against complacency we're running against offenses We're declaring that by the grace of God and that by the power of the Holy Ghost, we're going to cross that finish line ahead of all of those things so that when we get there, they're all left behind in the dust and we look back on them. So while you're running ahead of those things and the devil says, hey, weren't you offended? I left that behind the last corner. But, but, but aren't you, didn't, have you struck? I was struggled, but that was in the last lap. I've left those things, but I'm running. I'm pursuing perfect. There's a prize. That is set before me. And we have to say, devil, I'm sorry, but I can't stop now. I can't stop. If I could have a musician, please. Paul said, this one thing I do. I'm leaving those things behind me. I'm running. I'm reaching. I'm pressing towards the mark. He was probably the greatest men of God that ever lived. I don't know if we compare. We probably shouldn't compare them, but Paul was some servant of God. And yet he said, I'm pursuing perfection. God's used me. That's awesome. God's called me. That's fantastic. I helped start a church here. I helped start a church there. But I'm pursuing perfection. I'm chasing it down. It's not just because I want to be saved. It's because I want him to change me. I want him to transform me. I don't want to be mediocre and lukewarm and half-hearted and comfortable. I want to lay some things aside. I want to lay some junk aside. I want to put on a fence down and say, I'm leaving that behind me on the track back there and I'm running toward a mark. Paul said when he wrote to Timothy at the very end of his life, he said, I've finished my course. He said, right now, we are complete in him. We don't know when the ultimate perfection is coming. 
Bible says no man knows the hour or the day when Jesus is coming back. But Paul got to that point where he knew his life was about to finish. And that pursuit of perfection was one more step to its ultimate fulfillment. And he said, I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. He said, now there's a crown laid up for me. One receiveth the prize. He said, that's what I've been running for all along. He said, they hurt my feelings in Thessalonica. Demas forsook me. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. This one turned back. That one turned back. My own natural brethren, the Jews, persecuted me at every single place I went. But I'm pursuing perfection. I'm pursuing perfection. Stand with me if you would this morning. We're not talking about being born again. We're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, that is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then it says we are his workmanship. If you want to be his masterpiece this morning, I'm going to open this altar.